Double Reef Dish is embarking on our most exciting and ambitious project yet. We have created the Double Reef Dish Commission Consortium, including four dynamic, diverse, living American composers, Mason Bynes, Connor Chi, Catherine Pukinskis, and Bryn Solomon. Each composer is writing a new piece for oboe and bassoon, and you can be a part of the process. To reduce financial barriers, we created a multi-tiered approach that allows you to contribute as you are able with the lowest tier at just $25. That's four brand new works for $25. Everyone is welcome, so head to doublereaddish.com slash consortium to learn more and to join. We would love to have you be a part of this project with us. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hey, oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie, it's the last episode of 2021. And I'm still at work. (laughs) I, for the record, listeners, I sent Jackie the most hateful text last week. It was an audio message. You were kicking back. Kicking back. Yes. And of course it was an audio message because... Can't be bothered to text. (laughs) We couldn't be bothered to even like write things down. Texting was too much effort. And so Mm -hmm. it's just become trading audio messages back and forth, which is a whole new level of pathetic. I'm laying back on my couch, clinking the ice in the glass and bragging about how my uh, semester was over and Jackie's is not. It's still, and it's still not. That was several days ago and it's still not. (laughs) I still have finals to give. I still have grades. And <laughs> I am ready. Listen, 2021, loved you. 
<laughs> but no, I mean, for real, let's talk about, so how was your 2021? My 2021 was a lot better than my 2020. Yes, we kind of saw the, I don't know how much we should play into the narrative that the pandemic is over, but we kind of saw the reintroduction of a lot mm -hmm. of things that we had to say goodbye to in 2020. Mm -hmm. We kind of got a lot of those things back. I don't know if, about you, but 2021 was kind of defined by figuring out a new normal mm -hmm. as much as we're like gagging at that phrase. <laughs> New normal as we chart un, uh, uncharted, uncharted territory. Be flexible. Uh. Um, but, you know, all of those things are true and we had to navigate <laughs> them. So, yeah, you prefer 2021 to 2020? Oh, for sure. Um, I am triple vaccinated. As am I. I got a pop in each arm. I got my flu in my right arm and I got my COVID booster in my left arm. I was like, hit me up. Boom, boom. No, my 2021, I feel pretty happy with. I certainly am in a better headspace coming out of 2021 than I was coming out of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I'm getting my chops back, like my teaching chops and my playing chops and my social <laughs> chops, and my, my people chops. I'm getting all of that back. Although it was very weird to be in a room with people for a while. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Um, Chris and I went to a show, a podcast that we like did a live show in Spokane. And it was the first time I was in like an arena, you know, were you like, this is so weird. Am I safe? Am I okay? <laughs> it was just like, okay, like, you had to show proof of vaccination in order to get in Washington State has statewide mask mandate. So I felt safe doing it. But um, it was just weird to be in a group that big again in a hall mm -hmm. that was like absolutely full. I was like, whoa, this is the first time I've done this in a while. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And playing in ensembles, like gigs are coming back. And so, you know, I'm currently in Nutcracker week. Oh, Nutcracker is a ton of, how is it for the oboe? For the bassoon, it's just kind of fun. It's really fun. I mean, you just Tchaikovsky, it's like, how can you go wrong, you know? Right. What would you say was like a high of 2021 for you? A peak? Let's do a peak and a pit. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to say the peak was teaching in person again. Mm. I really, really missed my students. I really missed the face-to-face -face interaction and the being able to physically see them and not, I didn't play on the reeds, but like, look at the reeds, like hold them in my hand and look at them and like feel the sharpness of my knife myself. So that, you know, the, the frustration, I would say that would be the thorn or the pit, the frustration of trying to help without being able to touch the equipment that was yeah. really difficult. Yeah. So I, you know, and, and part of that also part of the, the, the peak, like, especially watching my new freshmen come in mm -hmm. and do really well, even though I have to say this was such a, a difficult semester, like fall 20, 2021 was really, really difficult. Um, mm -hmm. Just getting back into the swing, like emotionally, the mental health was a really big challenge for a lot of people. Yeah. I think a lot of people had a really 
hard transition back into in-person learning. I know I did. I did too. Yeah. I had a really tough transition. So it was kind of a mixed bag, but it's, it was so wonderful to be able to hear people in person. And, and actually probably more than that was to be able to play in person. What about yours? Probably my peak would be the Jim Stevenson concerto that I did in October. Um, because uh, I agree with everything you said, my pit would definitely be, um, it sounds so dour to say my pit would be this semester. Um, cause that's not true, <laughs> but yeah, my pit would be kind of the fatigue yeah. that I felt coming back. I, I did feel like certain things seemed like more work, even though I know it's the same amount I was doing before things made me more tired. Um, just coming out, emerging again, I did. And I feel kind of more exhausted at the end of this semester than I remember feeling at the end of normal falls. Yeah. Losing my steam, I guess, at the end has been. Yeah. Yeah. I I just kind of feel not to be corny, but I feel like I'm at home. I feel right here. And Mm -hmm. it maybe took a little bit of stretching, but I feel like I'm in my sweet spot in terms of fit. And so that was super cool. But I'm ready for a breaky break. Nap time. Jackie needs a break. Do not email me. <laughs> if you have a request, you may submit. I believe we're back on like January 7th or something. You may <laughs> I love a lot of things on the agenda mm-hmm. and most of them are television based and I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> what are you looking forward to in 2022? The podcast has quite a bit to look forward to in 2022. Oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. So if you are in the area of Oklahoma City on Saturday, January 15th, come to the Oklahoma City University Double Read Day, where we will be guest artists. Um, It's going to be a blast. It's going to be our first in-person live show since the pandemic, and we are going to bring it. It's going to be fabulous. But Galit, what if I'm not close to Oklahoma City? What if I'm closer to, say, Nebraska? Well, funny you should mention, but if you are in the Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska area on February 12th, you can come to the University of Nebraska Lincoln Double Read Day and hang out with us there live. And if you are not near either of those places, you should still mark the calendar for February 12th because our wonderful hosts, Bill McMullen and Nathan Cook, have said, listen, we need to live stream the live show. So yes. anyone anywhere in the world will be able to tune in to watch us do a live show at the University of Nebraska Double Read Day, which is the first time we will ever do a live streamed live show. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be something. And so (laughs) tune in to see, you know, are we ready for live TV? Are we ready to take over uh, Jimmy Kimmel's gig? I think so. I think so too. And also thank you. Thank you. And special shout out to Rachel Maxo and Anna Resnick Henson at Oklahoma City University who are having us there. So please come hang out with us. We miss seeing your beautiful faces in person and we would love to meet you IRL. 
Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.readdesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. We are delighted to welcome to Double Reed Dish, Dr. Susan Tomkowitz, Professor of Oboe at Columbus State University. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. We always love to start by hearing how people came to their instrument. So can you talk to us about how the oboe found you? <laughs> um, yeah, I started on the flute in fourth grade. Um, I was like, I was destined to play the flute because um, I had older friends that, you know, had gone through the band cycle and would play flute. And when we'd have our parties and sleepovers and whatnot, like I would always want to go to the friends that played the flute so I could go and like play their flute <laughs> when I went over to their house. And so finally, when it came my turn, um, it, like we got to pick our instruments and I was like, I got to play the flute. I got to play the flute. Um, and I remember when my dad like went to the music store like the day that he was going to pick up my flute and he came home and um he said i'm really sorry they don't have any more flutes i had to get you a trumpet and i just like like sobbed um but he was only joking he was only joking <laughs> he had the flute he was playing a joke on me but he didn't realize how much i wanted to play the flute um so i started taking some lessons um at one of the local music stores and um went through a couple of teachers, but the, the woman that I studied with um, pretty much from like eighth grade through high school, she was like this tiny woman um, scared the bejesus out of me. She was like, she, I learned so much from her. Like I look back and I'm like, oh my God, she was a really hard teacher, but I learned a ton. Um, when I was in eighth grade, I went to a lesson once and I was like, I kind of would like to take up a second instrument. What should I do? And she said, I think you should play um, piano or oboe. And I said, what's this oboe thing you're, you speak of? And, and she's like, it's a double reed instrument. I'm like, I want to do that. I had no idea what it was. Um, and so that's kind of how it started. I picked it up, started to take lessons. I was really fortunate to have um, private lessons through high school. So I would take oboe lessons and flute lessons at this music store. And um, through high school, I was really, flute came very easy to me. Um, and oboe did not. And so like oboe was always my second instrument. And so um, throughout high school, like I was flute first, flute first, flute first. And then like I would do kind of some oboe stuff. But of course the band director wants you to play oboe because there's 29,000 flutes in the band. Um, so that's kind of how it all started. I, I went into undergrad as a double major 
-hmm. in performance in both flute and oboe, which like, even when I say it, I giggle because it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but again, um, like so many flutes and they, you know, so few oboes where I went to school. And so they really wanted me to, to focus more on oboe. And I started to realize like, yeah, there are um, a lot of other flutists that are as good as me, if not better. And I hadn't experienced that in high school. So it's just like, maybe I'll do this oboe thing for, for a little while and see what happens. So that's kind of how, how I started with music and how oboe came into my life somewhat randomly, I guess. Talk us through your training and uh, educational journey. Yeah, I went to the University of New Hampshire for my undergrad, um, got a Bachelor of Arts. I didn't even know what that meant at the time. Like all I knew was I was doing music <laughs> and that's kind of all I wanted to do because that was really all I was ever good at uh, when I was younger. But um, I had no idea what that meant at the time. And so, um, yeah, I was doing this degree in, in music um, I call it my wasted degree because I was not focused and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, and then I, I went after undergrad, went and did a year of my master's and it, it just didn't take like the planet, the, the planets were not aligned and, um, nothing really worked out. And so, um, my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, Bill, he had moved out with me. And I was like, I don't know what I want to do anymore. Um, let's do what you want to do. And so we were from New Hampshire. So he wanted to move back to New Hampshire and he was a rock climber. He wanted to open up a, a rock climbing gym. It never happened. But like we lived in the real world for three or four years. And I was like, I think maybe I should go back to school and like get out of the the um, the kitchen. Like I was working in kitchens and um, mountain lodge their cafeterias and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. <laughs> so I, I started to, to like practice again. I had really put my instrument away for a while. Um, started to practice again, got back in touch with my oboe teacher from high school and started to study with her. And then she, she uh, sort of left, she, she moved to Mexico and I took over all of her teaching and um, a lot of her gigs in the tri-state area of Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, and did that, like did the freelance thing for about a year, year and a half. And then I was like, I should go back to school and finish my master's. And so I went to the University of New Mexico, spent a couple of years there, and really liked being a student and, and loved, um, I was totally different. I was like, I had grown up a whole bunch and um, cared about my education and like really was super focused and you gave me homework and I was going to do it um, probably twice because I, I wanted to get all the points for everything. And so um, when I finished the master's, I was like, I'm not done. I really would like to continue um, studying. And so ended up at, at UT Austin with Becky Henderson and was performance driven at the time. Like my plan was to take auditions and, and get an orchestra gig. But during the doctorate, I really found a love for teaching at the college level. So I had done some work with undergrads and um, non-majors and I used to teach the freshman read class. We called it freshman slice and dice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's sort of how like, wasn't my plan going in, but that's sort of how I ended up coming out. And in a lot of ways, like, I, I don't know, I don't know what would have happened if I had stayed on the orchestral route and where I would be and what I would be, do, be doing now, but um, I think the academic route is 
good for me. It's like, I think I'm well suited for it in some ways. <laughs> Could we hear about you embarking on and pursuing that path once you decided that you wanted to pursue academia? How did you find yourself uh, at Columbus State? Yeah, um, I my my last year of my doctorate. So I had the teaching assistantship for three years. I think that was the, the maximum that you could have it. And I had gotten to UT the same year that Becky Henderson started. And so I was her first teaching assistant. And so I finished up pretty much everything in the three years. I think I had like my um, my document, my big document and one or two recitals left in my fourth year. And so I, I was like, I didn't play in the ensembles. I just cause was doing like the, the bare minimum of the things that I had left to do. And there was a need for a, an adjunct teacher of music appreciation at Texas Lutheran University, which was like, I don't know, 45, 50 minutes away. And I, I don't remember how I even knew about it, but I like went to Becky and I'm like, so I got this email for this thing. I'm like, I'm not sure I want to do it. She's like, you're doing it. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so um, there was some, that was some tough mama love there from Becky. Um, and so I, I did it. And um, they happened to have like a couple of um, oboe students too. So it was like, I got to teach the oboe students too. And that was transformative because I was a terrible public speaker. Like I could put my instrument in my face and play pretty much in front of anyone. But if I had to speak in front of some people, like that was, that was bad. Um, I was not gifted there. And so being forced to like put this course together and get up on the stage and like lecture to these students at um, TLU was like that, that changed a lot of things. And that really helped prepare me in some ways, I think for, um, being in the classroom and being in academia. So when I graduated UT, um, there was a year position at Luther College. So I, I was there for a year in, in a position for, it was oboe and um, theory. I had to teach theory. Um, and so when I interviewed, you know, I went up and um, they're like, can you teach theory? Sorry, my dog's going to join me here in a second. That's great. Um, we love dogs. Hey, Porter. I was like, sure, I can teach theory. I can teach theory. <laughs> no, you just say yes. Can I have more, please? Exactly. So yeah. I got up there and it was really, it was, I did really well with the oboe students and I did, I did okay by the, the theory students, but I had no piano background. So like looking back to when the flute teacher was like, you should take piano or oboe. I'm like, I maybe should have taken a piano because <laughs> none of my degrees required piano. Mm-mm. So like, here I am, I'm like, um, I can play a scale with one hand but that's about all we get. So I had to, um, I took piano lessons while I was like trying to to keep up just enough to be able to get through the, the theory classes. And then I had to also teach the double read methods class. So like I had to kind of learn bassoon a little bit there to do, do the, so like focus was barely on, on oboe. Like it was really hard to sort of keep up um, with my own playing because I was trying to learn all these other instruments to teach those classes. After the year there, got another year position at Bowling Green State in Ohio, and um, that was a much different environment and um, was a little bit better suited for me, I think, um, but only spent the year there. And then I was I was a candidate for another year position. I was like, oh, my God, I don't know that I can do this again. Um, it was another year position at, at Ohio University. And um, 
I got a call from Christy Beard, who is the flute teacher at the University of Nebraska in Omaha, who I had known from UT Austin. She just sort of called me out of the blue one day. She's like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know. I'm about to interview for a third year position in a row. And I'm like, I'm trying to decide on that. Or like, do I just move back to Austin? Because I, I was pretty um, well connected in like freelancing and teaching, private teaching down there. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like, well, can I throw an option out at you? And I said, sure. She's like, we're looking for an adjunct oboe teacher. She's like, it's not going to be much. We can probably throw you a section or two of music appreciation. And um, that's all I can promise you to start with. But like, might you be interested? I was just like, sure. (laughs) Like, then at least I can go there. I can spend however long I want to and like not be tied to a year position. And I also sort of had the feeling that having a a long string of year positions on my resume was probably not going to look good after a while. And so so I pulled myself out of that um, that job consideration and um, we moved to Omaha and started teaching the the couple of oboe students that they had and um some apreche in my second year they needed a music history teacher so again like we were just saying can you teach music history yes (laughs) (laughs) you know and so it was just like scrambling to try to get that that all together um but had the opportunity to sub quite a lot with the omaha symphony and omaha is a cool little cool little town. So we That's actually what I've heard. It, it really is. So mm-hmm. we were, we were pretty content there. We actually bought our first house there. And I knew after our first year, I'm like, as soon as we buy a house, I'm going to get a job and we're going to have to move, which is exactly what happened. But we spent a good couple of years there. And I think I had interviewed for the real position at Ohio university that had come up and um, went out for the interview. It was like mid to late fall of whatever year that was. 2008, maybe, um, and had just gotten home from that interview. And I felt, okay, that was a heavy theory job, um, which Michelle Fiala was far better suited for than I was, um, but came home from that feeling okay and saw the posting for the Schwab School of Music here at CSU. And I was just like, uh, yeah, like I've never heard of this place before. Do I want to move to Georgia? I'm like, I need a job. I should go ahead and apply. And so I did. Um, and the rest, I guess, is kind of history. Like it was a whirlwind interview. I still don't quite understand how it all happened. Um, I was I was at Bush Gardens in Florida with my family in February. And I got a call from the chair of the search committee, um, the, our former bassoon professor, Ron Wharton. He's just like, I think it was like Thursday or Friday. He's just like, Hey, we'd really like for you to come for an interview. I was like, cool. I'm like, when, when is that? He's like, could you come on Monday? And I was like, um, okay. (laughs) And, and what was, what was going on? Like I was there that week, the following week, I had guest artists coming in on Thursday, actually Becky and, um, a former bassoon colleague, Nate Zeisler, who I was at Bowling Green with, they were coming in Thursday of that following week for a double read day that we were having. And I was like, Ron, it's really not the best week. Like any chance we could, we could postpone one week because that's when our spring break, he's just like, no, we really need it to be on Monday. I'm like, alrighty, I'll make it work. And so luckily I had brought my oboe like on vacation with my family, um, much to their dismay. Cause 
they, they heard me practicing all the time. Um, <laughs> I remember my niece being like, can we change the station? I was like, oh, that's, that's cold. That's really cold. Um, so, so I agreed to come out on Monday. He's like, oh, by the way, we're going to need you to teach a lecture on Wagner for the music history class. Like, alrighty, <laughs> perfect. Um, so we flew home on Sunday. I, I was very lucky that one of my very good friends at UNO, her husband was the, the cello and the music history teacher. So we flew in, I went to campus, he met me in his office and we put together this lecture on Wagner um, and like he saved my skin basically. And so flew out on Monday, I was, I was in town, I think maybe 16 hours, um, went in and did the thing and left. And um, it was about a week later, I think that got the call and offered me the job and I was like, cool. And so, came out here not knowing if it was going to be like a um, stepping stone kind of job or, or what, but 13 years later, um, still here and don't really plan on, on going anywhere. It's, it's the quality of the program is, is fantastic and the size of the school and my colleagues and everything. It's like, that's the perfect fit for me. So super happy. What a chaotic journey. <laughs> like it, that's, like that's not even all of it. There are parts in there that we didn't even get to, but it's like it was um there were many twists and turns and and all the all the all the things in between. But I feel like all of those things they shape your experience and they shape who you are and you like I would be a different person today, I think, if it didn't if it didn't all go down the way that it did. So you have just so much experience in academia. And on the job hunt. Is a good thing or a bad thing? Like, it's a good, <laughs> am I tainted oh. or bad? Like, I'll have all the wisdom. <laughs> it's a good thing because you have the wisdom and it's a bad thing because you probably also have a lot of like emotional <laughs> trauma. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's some therapy that's necessary. <laughs> so dip into that wisdom a little bit. And I would love to hear, well, let's say we can take this in any direction. Like, what do you look for in a colleague? What makes a great higher ed colleague? What do you, you know, you've been on both sides. You've been on the job hunt. You've successfully won so many positions. You have been on committees looking for colleagues. Like what is some advice you can give to the people who are on that hard grind right now, maybe living that adjunct life or in that stepping stone job, like, looking for the next thing. What is your advice to them? Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard business that, that we are, that we're in really. Um, as the, the interviewee, I guess, um, in any job position, I would say like your job is out there um, and try not to get too discouraged when year position after year position after year position, you know, and like, you're not landing any of those positions and like, then you're adjunct for a little while. It's like, there's a journey I think that needs, needs to happen. And eventually you'll find, find the place that is best suited to you and like where you're the best fit. Um, ideally when, when we interview, I think it's like the interviews are such a funny thing. Um, not double read dish interviews, double read dish interviews. <laughs> um, academic position interviews, I guess we can say. It's so funny because it's like, uh, as uh, on both sides, and this is partly just me, I think, in my personality. Like, I'm I'm a very real, down to earth 
person and can confirm. Yeah, but I can't expect <laughs> that from from everyone. But I would, if I get the sense that someone comes in and they're they're genuine, like they get the skills, you know, they get the CV, they've got some experience, um, and they seem like a genuine person. That's the kind of colleague I I tend to lean towards because um, disingenuous people, I just it's like I can smell them a mile away and they really turn me off very quickly and I sort of don't want to be anywhere near them. Um, but we have all, all kinds of colleagues, right. And we have to learn to, to navigate <laughs> the hallways and the life of academia um, with everyone. So, I mean, I, I can exist with pretty much anyone. Um, am I going to seek out opportunities to play music with everyone? Probably not because like I, I want to, Kind of want to like you, right? <laughs> if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna share some music and um, and have some fun, mm -hmm. but uh, for me, it's like be real, be genuine, mm -hmm. um, be yourself. On, yeah, be yourself, absolutely. And mm -hmm. when you're on the when you're on the track, whether it's you know doing orchestral auditions or like academic position interviews, like hang in there. I think. <laughs> It's like that poster with the cat hanging from the <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, you are um, very engaged in commissioning and creating new works and expanding the repertoire for the oboe. Um, I'd love to hear about those experiences. And maybe if you could also talk to our listeners a little bit about um, the process of working with composers to create new works and why that's so uh, attractive to you. Yeah, I, that is, I feel really strongly about that. And in fact, when we did the, the IDRS conference here in 2016, um, talk about needing some therapy. Uh, <laughs> that was, I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we did it. Um, but that was a lot. That was a lot. Um, we did, a, we created something new and we did a, a, a new like composition contest because we that's like we want to introduce new repertoire um into the organization because i kind of feel like that's that's part of the function of the organization right if if they're not going to support that then um then who who is mm -hmm. um and so we were super happy about that and introducing that um into the conference here, I think it kind of died for a couple of years, but I think, I think it's back. Like, I think the, there's, there's some fresh perspectives now in the organization and that's really exciting. Um, I, I just feel like it's, it's part of my, my role as a musician and, and, and an educator. Like, I feel like I need to be making some contributions and that's one thing that I feel like I can do. So kind of <laughs> everywhere I go, like, even back at, at UT, like I, I made some friends with some composers and I'd be like, hey, you want to write me a piece? And so like, that's kind of how it started with just asking some composer friends to write pieces. There was a composer on faculty at UT that he had done a project. It was actually super cool. It was a, um, a collaborative project with like dance and art and film and music and um he needed english horn for that and so um it was a recording session and uh, i did whatever it was he needed to do and then like was able to go and see the final project which was super cool and so i think the year that i was at luther college um 
I commissioned him to write me a piece for English Warren because I really liked what I really liked the writing for that project that he did. Um, and for for that, it was kind of like I wanted with electronics too because he was a, an electronic composer, and so um, just kind of gave him free reign. And I was doing the premiere of that at the I think it was the Ball State conference. I have no idea what year that was. It's probably like in the early two thousands. Um, and he, he came like finally coughed up the piece like really late like dude i need need the piece because the conference is like in a month and so um sent it to me and it was insane like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> like happy that we're or like physically not possible i'm like because I'm imagining like English horn expressing yeah. lines and I'm like, blah, 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 like all the notes and, and all of the all of the world to happen in like 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> and, and what had happened was he sent it to me and then he left town like he was traveling. And so he couldn't do he couldn't revise anything. So it was like I was kind of stuck with it as it was. And so I worked so hard for that month. Like I, re I remember the room on campus that I was just pulled up in um, because it had gear that I could be playing the recording and like just practicing. And I like spent days, like every day for that, that month, just working out this piece um, and, and managed to pull it off. But, oh my God, that was, that was so, so hard. Um, so kind of learned my lesson a little bit. Like you can give the composer free reign, but maybe check in with him every once. <laughs> right. Make sure you're happy with how things are going. Progress um, check. <laughs> progress check for sure. Um, and like, you know, give yourself enough time to to prepare to work before you go do a world premiere. So I was I was really on like the electronic um, music track for a while, and and had done some some other commissions. And then it, honestly, I just sort of fell out of that. Not because I don't, I don't like those um, electroacoustic pieces anymore. It's just sort of, I don't know, life went in a different direction, but still like composers that I, I happen to run into or, or that I'm working with based on um, the different places that I've been, which I guess that's one of the, the upsides. Like I've got a piece that um, Brooke Joyce, who I was at Luther college with uh, had written me, I've got colleagues here that have written pieces, um, former students, some of our alumni here from Schwab, um, we commissioned. So we did two pieces in Spain. Um, one was from a for former student, Nathan Hudson, and then the other piece was um, James Ogburn, who is our, our theory and comp professor here. And so um, a lot of times it's just like, ask the composer and if they're, if they're game, then um, cool. Mm. The, the latest thing that we just did was um, Chrysalis. Alyssa Morris's piece for English horn and piano that, of course, um, the, the amazing Carolyn Hove had done the original commission for and, and gave the world premiere here, actually, in 2015, the last year that we did the English horn masterclasses with her. And then, if I'm remembering right, because IDRS brain is a little fuzzy, um, we had her play on one of the evening concerts um, at IDRS when we had it here. And I just kind of fell in love with that piece and thought that there were so many um, opportunities for beautiful colors that I talked to Alyssa and asked her if she would rescore the piano part for like smaller, small chamber orchestra. Oh, cool. Yeah. And she was down and I'm like, let me ask Carolyn first to make sure it's okay with her, you know, cause it was her piece initially. So she was just like, yeah, sure. That sounds like a great idea. 
And so um, Alyssa did that for us. We were supposed to premiere that in um, April of 2020. So what happened? <laughs> <laughs> so we actually just did the premiere this past Sunday. Oh, um, good. <laughs> yeah, so that got, that got canned. And then, like, we tried to do it, we tried to do it. And then finally, we just did it. And so, um, that, which was super exciting. Like I, I told the students, they did a beautiful job. I worked with my colleague here, Paul Hostetter, or our director of orchestral activities. And then Tatiana Muzanova, who is our, one of our pianists here, who actually did the world premiere with Carolyn when she premiered it here and then played with her at IDRS. I nabbed her to play piano with us, um, with the orchestra. So we gave that premiere. It was very exciting. Um, I've been with that piece for a really long time. So I was really ready to to do it and like see it in my rear view mirror. Um, and we record actually on Friday, we're doing a professional recording of that. And so that is um, that piece. And then the Nathan Hudson piece that I had just mentioned a couple minutes ago, we've got that to record. And then that I have enough for like, I say a CD, but I don't think people really are doing CDs anymore. So whatever now, whatever it is, yeah, yeah, there'll be something. So it's all a grouping of mp3 files <laughs> yeah so i'm excited because it's all it's all things that um i'm putting out there and hopefully hopefully other people will will like some of the music and want to play it too mm-hmm. i would also love to ask you about your background in yoga and yeah. in body health and <laughs> how you got there i had tried yoga like off and on i remember when I was in Albuquerque, um, going to UNM, uh, a friend of mine and I, they, they had like a, it was almost like a continuing ed division of UNM. And we were just looking at the catalog and there was like a six week or eight week Ashtanga yoga mm-hmm. class. And we're like, that sounds fun. Let's try it. And so that was the first time I sort of got the, the yoga bug, I think, and was going consistently until we moved to Austin. And then I was a doctoral student and a teaching assistant. And my husband was also in school and I was too poor. But there was a, a base student there that she had some yoga experience. And I remember there were four of us um, that we would meet in a classroom a couple mornings a, a week. And she would just kind of lead us in a yoga practice. And so I was just completely addicted, um, but very sad that I couldn't afford to actually <laughs> go, go to real classes and in a studio and pay for them. Um, and then it kind of fell by the wayside when I moved here, one of my voice colleagues, Shelly DeBryan, um, in the first semester here, she was just like, Oh, I go to this yoga studio. You should come with me sometime. And it took me about a semester to finally go. And I finally did. And I was just like, Oh man, I remember how amazing this was. And I'm sorry that I, I let it go by the wayside for a few years, but, um, like just at that point was completely addicted and, and went regularly and um, got to a point where I wanted more out of it. Like I did not want to be a yoga teacher because I tell people what to do all the time, (laughs) you know, in in academia, like in lessons, like, you know, you're telling your students um, teaching and whatever. And so like, that was not what I wanted, but I wanted to deepen my practice. And so kind of had the idea that I wanted to do a 200 hour certification and um, it took a while for the planets to align for me to be able to do that because there was nothing in town that offered um, teacher training. 
but there was like studios up in Atlanta and studios in Auburn, but the dates just never worked out because it would be like eight weekends and like two of the weekends I would have stuff um, at the, the opera house or like Columbus Symphony or like things just didn't work out until finally, I think it was the summer of 2017, um, the studio in Auburn, Yoga Fly, which um, unfortunately is no longer open. They closed. It was a, a COVID, um, you know, like many things. A COVID um, casualty. A COVID casualty, yes. They, they, it was in a two-part. So it was like the first part was the immersion, and that was two solid weeks. And then the second part was teaching skills, and that was another two solid weeks. And I could do the immersion and like part of the teaching skills, but that summer was we were celebrating my parents 50th anniversary and my mom had booked the whole family on this like trip to Yellowstone. So it was like, I can't kill it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I talked with my teacher and she was just like, well, why don't you do the immersion? And she said, I'll offer it again next summer and you can pick up the teaching skills next summer. So that's what I did. So I did the first half um, in 2017 and finished it up in 2018 but realized, um, especially when we got into the teaching skills part that I'm like, in order to really embody this, I got to teach it. And so now I'm a yoga teacher, uh, which I really enjoy, but there's a difference between being the teacher and like being the student on your mat and just really being able to like be inward and and doing your own thing. Um, Yeah. When you're a student, you're only focused on yourself and your own body. And when you're a teacher, you can't be focused on your own body. You're focusing on everyone else's. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been like, I wouldn't trade that. Um, But I do miss being the student. And it's just like, I could be going to studios now. Um, I'm just not there yet. Like, and and I'm busy too. So it's like, I'm teaching a couple days. We have a great class called Yoga for Performers at School. um, And I've been teaching that consistently for the the last few years. Um, Usually my colleague and I swap off semesters. So I've been doing that. And then I do like a for fun class for my my colleagues. We just kind of meet Wednesday nights and whoever shows up will teach on Zoom. And um, but I do I like I need to get back doing some for me. Um, So I, I really miss that aspect. But crazy person that I am, I started a 300 hour, um, about a year and a half ago. Um, it was, it's an online thing. And I was just like, it was super cheap. (laughs) So teacher training, like to get your certification can be really expensive. It's going to be like several thousand bucks. And so this training was really inexpensive. And so I sent the description to my teacher that I did the 200 hour with. And I'm like, does this look legit? Cause cause it's really affordable. She's like, it looks like it has all the good components. So it was like, all right, so I signed up for it and everything's on the teachable app. And so I can kind of pick away at it as I have time. And so I'm about 40% done. So I'm hoping over, over the break, I can like knock out most of the rest of it. So I don't know. It's like one of those things that you just, you're never done. Like there's always something more to discover and explore and learn about. And I think that's, it's similar to music, right? So I think that's why I'm drawn to both of those things because we're, we're, we're never really a finished product. Mm-hmm. You'd also mentioned that you've had to deal with TMJ and that that has impacted your career. Can we hear a little bit about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I should have mentioned that as we're talking about like yoga and, and body awareness and all that good stuff. Um, I, 
when I was nine, I like borrowed someone's bike and was coming down a super, super steep hill and hit a bump, flew over the handlebars, landed on my chin, basically um, slipped my chin open, had a concussion. Mm. Um, and that honestly, I think that's where it all started. Like, how can you not have damage to your temporomandibular joint when you landed on your chin, <laughs> like had that kind of an impact. Mm-hmm. And so, but nothing like didn't really um, have any adverse effects aside. I remember going to the dentist in high school and when I'd open my mouth, he'd be like, oh, your jaw clicks. We should check into TMJ. I was like, well, I don't have any problems with it. So why, why bother? Um, it, it wasn't until I was here um, and it was like my second or third year or so where I was just... It, I didn't know it was TMJ. Um, I was actually going to a chiropractor for shoulder issues and he had done um, extensive x-rays and things. And he said, Hey, do you know you have TMJ? And I was like, I did not know that. Um, Interesting. Um, But then I started to notice as I was practicing that within 15, 20 minutes, um, all the muscles are just not functioning. And so instead of like being able to hold an embouchure forward, they all want to um, get tight and retreat and go backwards. Ooh, yeah. So I was getting to the point where I, I couldn't really function on the instrument. And I was going to have a, I had a recital at the very beginning of the semester. Cause I kind of like to do it and, and get it done. Yeah, me too. And, and I couldn't like, I could not see how it was possible for me to get through this recital. Cause I couldn't put my face on the instrument and keep it there for that long. Right. And I remember driving to um, sort of like welcome week meetings and stuff here before the semester was starting um, with a colleague that used to live nearby. And I mentioned it to her, actually my, my yoga, um, my friend Shelly, my yoga colleague as well. She, she said, um, do you know there's a TMJ specialist in town? I was like, well, I had no idea. And so made an appointment and, and went to see them and they, they did extensive x-rays and all kinds of things and like confirmed that, yes, you have TMJ. They're like, it's not the worst case we've ever seen, but it's definitely sort of um, in the middle of, of what we've dealt with. And so did um, what they considered treatment, which was like, they, they made you the fancy appliance um, that I had to wear 24 hours a day. And so if you've never, heard someone speaking with one of those appliances or had to wear one yourself. Um, it provides you with a super awesome lisp. I was like, you know, I was still teaching music appreciation here. Um, the first half of my time here. And so I went into class that first day. I was like, okay, class, here's the situation. I'm like, if you want to, but I'm like, I'm going to have this lisp for the rest of the semester. They were very, they were very kind. I have to say, but that appliance, trained me um to open my jaw so like my resting position was my teeth clenched and closed all the time for whatever reason for whatever reason that was and so that trained me to to keep space between the teeth at least when i'm awake and i wear the appliance when i just asleep now um according to them and i think we could probably open up a giant can of worms here um tmj is not curable I know I could probably try surgery or, or some other whatever's, but I feel like for me, that's too big of a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, I've been able to kind of maintain um, some level of, of performing, um, but not to the extent like when I was a doctoral student, like I could play all day as a doctoral student. So I just have to be smart 
about what I program. Mm. And so my recitals tend to be pretty short, like definitely under an hour. And I just have to be careful with what I put on them. Like I will not be playing the Strauss concerto probably ever again <laughs> in my life. I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> all right. um, but I do, I find that like playing consistently definitely helps. And when, when I'm not like, that's when I notice it um, the most, like things are starting to tighten up and stuff. So yeah. some, some degree of consistency is really important um, for my function. So I'm super, super aware of physical things and alignment and how the body is moving and functioning both in myself, like I'm hyper, hyper aware, but in my students too. So I think, um, you know, the ones that are going to listen to you, like they can really benefit from that, but you know, it's, it's until you experience something, a lot of times you, you don't really listen to what your teachers are are saying. And so, Mm But I try to I try to do the best that I can and be like, please don't do that because you're going to end up like me. And I promise you, it's not that much fun. Um, but but they're going to do their their own thing. But but I think it's made me a better teacher. I definitely had to learn how to use my words because that semester that I was um, first undergoing treatment, I couldn't play, like couldn't even put a read in my mouth to test reads in read class. So I had to really there's no modeling and I had to learn really well and really quickly, like how to, to be very effective with, um, my language. And on the flip side, my students had to also like adapt because they had to learn how to really assess their reads and their crows because I couldn't, I couldn't do it for them. Um, seems like a skill that came in handy in the last year and a half or so. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so, you know, it's, I don't know. It's like, if I could go back to when I was eight and a half and never get on that bike when I was nine, maybe everything would be different, but who knows? And like, all, I think all experiences, good and bad, make, make us who we are. And so like, I'm here and I'm who I am because of all the stuff that I've um, that I've been blessed with, blessed to have and fortunate enough to, to have, but then also all the, all the other stuff that comes along with it, you know, it's life. Would you regale us with a favorite memory of a past performance? It's funny because I so love chamber music. Like if I have to choose anything, like I'm going to pick chamber music. I just love it. Like, solo stuff, even just solo and piano is not as rewarding to me. Like I just love um, the the chamber environment. However, um, I also have a a mad love for Mahler. I just love, 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 love Mahler. And I remember when I was a student at UT, we did Mahler two, and I was lucky enough to be principal oboe on that. And just the fact that we were playing Mahler, like that was enough for me, but um, just, loved that piece and i remember um i don't remember which second movement i don't remember um it was the the line the writing with the oboe and the voice and um one of the concerts like one concert was like that was the one um i just remember like having this communication with with the orchestra conductor and like playing the solo and i'm just like if i die after this everything is okay. <laughs> Cause it was just like this moment, um, in musical time that I was just like, that was worth, worth everything. Um, 
getting up to this point. So um, yeah, love, love Mahler. And that's, I don't know, I always remember that. I, I loved that orchestra um, conductor, Kevin No was his name. I think he was gone probably by the time you, you were there, Galit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he and Becky were like, that what I got out of the two of them during that degree were, it was, um, it was awesome. 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 What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? <laughs> Diversify. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's okay. Absolutely. Okay. To want to pursue a career in music. Like I think it's, it's becoming more diverse, um, especially after the last year and a half, right? Like people realizing that, um, cause I've had some students that were performance majors that are just like, I think I should get a, get a minor or a double major in something after seeing, you know, all of these musicians out of work. Um, but I think it's also to, to realize that it's, it's not just a two track, um, thing, right. It's not just performance or education. Like there's so many other areas where you can contribute to the world of music. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing that I try to encourage my students with. Like if they're coming in with just one or the other, I'm just like, you know, what are your other interests and how can we weave some of those things into what you could, what you could do and what your contributions could be to the musical world. Um, I think for, again, like the advice that you want to give younger people, it's like, for me, it's a little bit do, do as I say and not as I did, <laughs> because like, as I mentioned before, like my undergrad was just not, I was not very productive in my undergrad, but being, um, be present. Like if you're going to do the thing, if you're going to, whatever it is, um, really do it, be present, um, be productive, be mindful. So the time that you're spending doing all these things, like it means something and you get more out of it and you become better because of it. Um, doesn't mean like don't do other things and don't have fun, but, but like, make make the time that you <laughs> this can get really deep make the time that you have on this earth like make it mean something <laughs> sue this has been such a wonderful way to spend an hour it's been a pleasure to talk to you and i'm so happy to hear your thoughts on music and yoga and life thank you so much for coming and chatting with us on double read dish absolutely it was fun thank you ladies Thank you for joining us for that episode. Enjoy your winter break, however long or short it may be. We're rooting for you. And we're going to go into 2022 refreshed and just ready to kick butt. At 100% nap capacity. <laughs> uh, follow us on social media. Join the consortium if you haven't yet. And um, yeah, like and review on iTunes. Galit, who's coming up on the next episode. Next, we have Laura Bennett Cameron, Assistant Professor of Bassoon and Chamber Music at the University of Texas, Arlington. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads. I'm not going to go make reads. Go make reads in your jammies with a bowl of ice cream. I'm probably still not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs>